your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots episode number one, recorded November 29th, 2016. The Privacy Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated July 24th, 2016. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong. And welcome to the Privacy Patriots podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. I, I suppose off the bat, what we should probably do is talk about why it is that we're here today. And the idea is that we as the Privacy Patriots started out as a separate organization and have recently joined forces with Restore the Fourth. And I think before we can really talk about Restoring the Fourth, we should talk about what the Fourth is. Fung, why don't you take this one? Well, straight from the Constitution, it reads the, as the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons to be seized. So, when it comes down to it, a lot of what we find in law is actually not as complicated as it seems at first. You do, of course, have good reason, there is a very good reason for lawyers to exist, and that's because of the fact that their job is to pick out the little nuances of things. But on the face of it, a lot of law, especially a lot of early law, such as what we find in the constitutional amendments, is really very straightforward stuff. In short, what they're saying to us here is that unless somebody has a warrant, and unless there's a good reason for there to be a warrant, there isn't going to be one. So in short, I describe it as you have the right to be unknown until there's a specific reason for you to be known. That's my interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. That's actually a really interesting interpretation of it. I never really thought of it that way. I've always thought of it more along the lines of the fact that your home is your castle. It, the walls of the... It's you know what you can almost you can almost think of the government as vampires. They can't come in unless they're invited. <laughs> what parties are you going to? Well, I don't know, but I figured you know since Halloween is just a couple days away, that seems kind of suited. Yeah, I, I mean, in in terms of being known, I, I think it, it 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 really simplifies it, and it also applies it to. Uh, today's context in a digital age in, in a lot of ways. I, I feel that um, there's, we're seeing so many attempts at what we'll call TIA, Total Information Awareness, by government entities. I mean, uh, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, corporate entities as well and the information they like to collect, but I think a lot of the focus and what we're going to be talking about in this show is specific to, you know, what results from government surveillance and the fact that the government ultimately can compel you in ways that no other corporate entity or uh, other organization can. Um, you, they can put you in jail is the simple way to put it. And what are the implications of uh, you know, an entity with the power to imprison you, surveilling you. Uh, I think that's what something we have to look at in the digital age. It, it is, and and I think uh, we have to take it a step further as well. When we look at what the the corporate entities are doing as far as surveilling us, uh, even in the cases where they are sworn to secrecy, even in the cases where we are paying them to keep our stuff private, that particular thing is not necessarily going to prevent a government actor from coming in with a, a warrant, whether it be legitimate or not, and, and probably somewhere along the line we should talk about the legitimacy of national security letters, um, without, uh, well, basically what it comes down to is this, if a government agent if a government agent shows up at a corporate site, a corporate data center, uh, with a piece of paper that says, give us the servers, 
it's pretty certain that the co corporate entity is going to give them the servers. Mm -hmm. But that leads me to another point. If you know, if we go back into the Fourth Amendment and we uh, we look at what they name their persons, houses, papers, and effects, um, I think papers is what stands out in the digital age because uh, I mean the, the the founders existed in an era where information was ultimately physical in some way you absolutely you really had it, it, it was writing uh, things words written on a, on a piece of paper 99% of the time is how it manifested um, in the digital age I think it's very fair to ch to just transpose papers to information. I think so. Yeah, um, because realistically, when you think about the things that we used to do on paper, we used to uh, send memos. Well, now we send email. We used to send uh, uh, letters. Now we send email. Uh, we used to carry out conversations uh, sometimes in a public forum by by posting things on a bulletin board and Martin Luther could tell you all about that <laughs> um, and uh, we could read books well obviously we can still read books but a lot of the a lot of the time what we are reading is now in digital form it's been pre been presented to us as a PDF or as an ebook or something along those general lines and it sits on our physical device or on our our digital devices with no real physical manifestation but yeah those are our papers now you mentioned national security letters and I think that's a, a good segue if we go back to our intro a bit and this being our inaugural podcast I think it warrants some explanation uh the bit that you you mentioned in there about um no uh, uh no legal instruments have been uh, presented to us yeah absolutely turn over information uh, absolutely what's that all about well it, it, it's like this um in a nutshell there traditionally any kind of uh, any kind of instance in which the government needs to collect information they would produce uh, a subpoena or some similar legal instrument that says give us the documents give us the papers and it usually has got a signature of a judge and I think this is true of national security letters as well so far it's uh, uh, this this piece of paper that basically says we require we compel or, or actually more specifically you are commanded that you shall turn over these papers under penalty of death. Actually, that's what the word subpoena means. It's just Latin for under penalty. Mm. And uh, when you don't do so, then then certain legal consequences occur. You may, you may be sent to jail, may have to pay some fine or, or whatever. In the case of a corporate entity, obviously, you can be sanctioned in other ways as well. But Not really. No? You don't think so? I'm <laughs> you you may miss out on valuable government contracts. I think that qualifies. Uh, then you have uh, national security letters. Now these are an abomination that started to appear in the period immediately following 9/11. And now this is the part that freaks the heck out of me. This year is 2016. It has been 15 years since 9/11. There are people alive today, people who will be able to vote in the upcoming election in two weeks' time, who don't know a pre-9-11 world. Yes, okay, yes, I understand that was only 15 years ago, you got to be 18 years to vote, but I generally consider the, the age at which people's memories start to form as being about four years old. So there are people today... My nephew, for instance, is a perfect example who have just turned 18 or are just about to turn 18 who are going to be voting in this election who don't know a pre-9-11 world. Now, even though I have just gone completely off the rails, I'm going to bring this back here and I'm going to say that this is a thing that popped up as a result of the 9-11 and the post-9-11 world. And it is essentially, effectively, a subpoena. It is signed by a judge. But it's got this one thing on it that makes it absolutely insidious, and that is a gag order that comes with it. It says, you can't talk about this. 
It says you have to turn over the documents and you can't tell anybody that you've done it. You can't explain to anybody why you've done it. You're basically hosed. Now, I know the ACLU and others have contended that the gag order is is a blatant... Uh, it's wholly unconstitutional and in a... In a uh, totally goes against the First Amendment. Right, absolutely. I mean, we, we're talking primarily about the Fourth Amendment here, but all of the amendments kind of come together as a, as a unified whole to give us our, our rights, and they protect each other. You know, the, 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 the First Amendment gives us the right to say what we want, for a large part. Obviously, it doesn't protect us from the consequences of what we say, but in this particular case, there should be no consequences of saying, yes, I received a subpoena. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it my understanding that national security letters uh, existed pre-9-11, but they weren't very frequently used, and then they became suddenly... Now, that's an interesting question, and I actually don't know the answer to that. I started hearing about them in the, in the post-9-11 era, so that, that might be true. So to bring it back around to my original note, uh, I, th I, th I think we're being a bit figurative, but uh, we'll call it our warrant canary or our NSL canary that we include in the intro to the show. And that is the gist of it. Um, basically, by saying that at the start of the show, we provide some way of indicating to you, our listeners, that we have not been in receipt of a national security letter. Because should we receive one, we wouldn't be able to tell you that. And this is a common practice with uh, websites where uh, and other online services where it's more of a, a two-way interaction between users than, say, a podcast, but uh, where... You know, we're not really collecting user information in any way, but... <laughs> Actually, we're doing our damnedest to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you'll see these canaries on EFF popular sites mind. like uh, Reddit. You know, earlier this year, there was some speculation that, that um, when they revised the privacy uh, policies on Reddit, that there was suddenly some language missing that uh, was in regards to um, some felt that the implications were hinted at that a national security gun. letter yeah. had been uh, had been served. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do remember seeing that discussion on Reddit. Yeah. So it, uh, I guess the bottom line of it is that basically. Our intention is, at the start of each podcast, to let everybody know that we have not actually received any national security level letters. And that's exactly it. That's a, I'd say unless, however, the truth of it is, we don't want to see a national security letter. So <laughs> our intention remains to tell everybody at the start of every podcast that we haven't received any national security letters. But if we do, we're not going to lie to you. But it's... A, it's um what's the the appropriate double negative there you're you're um you're you're not speaking any untruths but you're you're um well, you're kind of dancing around <laughs> the issue by well well um i'm trying to think of a good example didn't didn't linus torvald have an interview where i guess I guess a good analogy would be that interview with Linus, where they, you know, they asked if if uh, anyone had ever approached him to uh, put a backdoor in Linux, and he said no, and nodded his not his head up and down <laughs> as he said no. <laughs> it's kind of a it, it's almost kind of a question that answers itself. It's it's. Um, I'd, I'm not a big fan of the idea of a stupid question. I don't think there are any stupid questions, but there are definitely naive questions, and it seems to me as though asking that one of Linus would, would certainly qualify. <laughs> I 
mean, it'd, be, it'd be like asking the same question of one of the developers of, um, uh, say, uh, OpenSSL or, or OpenSSH or any of the other myriad uh, cryptographic products that are out there, especially the open source ones. So what, what would you do if you received a, a national security letter? Freak out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be the honest truth. I, I probably would freak out. Uh, I would think that the first thing that you should do, and, and this was actually one of the things that was kind of, uh, kind of uh, contentious at first, but it seems to me, I, I think one of the initial interpretations of these letters was that you were precluded even from speaking to a lawyer about it, but I would say that, that that's been pretty well held up that you can do that, and indeed I would think that you should do that. Uh, first and foremost, go find. If you don't have a lawyer, go get one like now, <laughs> I, because uh, because you need to fight these things. These these are not reasonable things. Whether they be legal or not, I think is still uh, is still somewhat questionable. It's sort of like it, it's almost from the the Richard Nixon school of thought here. The president is doing it, therefore it's legal. Well, the government is doing that, therefore it's legal. No. No, it just doesn't work that way. I, I, I daydream about this a bit, and I, uh, I, I think I have such a proclivity towards um, um, uh, conscientious objection that I think I would, <laughs> I think I would, uh, um, I think I would uh, immediately go on Periscope and live broadcast these the subpoena being delivered to me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you'd have to know, you'd have to see them coming and know that that's what they were coming for, of course, and and that sort of prescience is. Uh, well, I would assume they would spend a little time with you, <laughs> that they wouldn't just hand it to you and then walk away. I think they'd want to impress. I don't know. I mean, we could only imagine, and uh, the people who have gone through the experience can't talk about it. <laughs> well, there's there's truth to that, and and. I, I will say though, you know, I've done work as a process server from time to time, and it's, oh, it's really? actually yeah, I know, and it's one of those one of those things that I don't talk about a whole lot, but here I am talking about it. Yeah, um, it's actually not as interesting as all that, but the the gist of it is basically you've got to do a little detective work, find the person, and uh, uh, make sure you don't. Here's the funny thing about it. You have to, more than anything else, make sure that they are aware that a piece of paper exists than to confirm that they've actually read the thing. Yeah. Uh, I had one, one particular case, and I won't name names for obvious reasons, but I will say in one particular case, uh, I presented the, the document to, the, to the, the person that it was to be presented to, and uh, the, the person said, so if, if I don't touch that, that doesn't exist, right? And I said to the person, well, listen, here's the thing. I'm going to go back to my car right now where they're sitting an affidavit that says, I know that you know that this document exists. <laughs> so it's entirely up to you whether or not you want to try to make that argument to a judge. <laughs> but uh, but to, to, the, to that point, I would have to say that any you know one of the important things about uh, about process serving is that you do have to do a little bit of detective work to find the person that you're supposed to be delivering the the documents to and sometimes it's easy sometimes uh sometimes you can you know just they'll they'll give you an an accurate description your customer will an accurate description of the the person that you're supposed to be serving the papers to and sometimes uh, you just get a name, and and sometimes you look out and you can find their photo on Facebook, and sometimes you get some people who were very clever and put up photos of other people on Facebook. But don't you think that the experience of getting served uh, was, uh, you know, to show up to say family court or, or you know what whatever kind of typical <laughs> cases you would handle is going to be one thing, but. Don't you think uh, if you're getting an SNL, aren't you getting a visit in by like Men in Black or something or a similar <laughs> group of folks? You know, I that's a good question, and and I don't know. I don't imagine it being um, as uh, benign as as your door knocking. 
Well, I mean, you see, that's the thing. I, I know that in in my particular uh, in my particular experience uh, as a process server, it's been very 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 quick thing. It's basically, hi, are you so and so? Yeah, who's asking? <laughs> Run! Bam! <laughs> Done. <laughs> and then you, you know. book it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the the thing of it was in in in. Uh, uh, a lot of these cases, you don't even really have to worry about booking it that much because usually these these exchanges just happen in public places okay. where where uh, there are witnesses and and people will generally behave themselves. Or in, in one case, I I showed up at the person's place of work, and there was a obviously a necessity that the person maintain professional decorum uh, the entire exchange. So there you have it. You know, and and realistically, in that particular case, I saw the look on your face when I said showing up at their place of work, <laughs> and I understand the disgust that 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 might necessarily <laughs> in, entail. But the person was being served in their capacity as the job they do, so it's it's it was legit in that case. I, I try to be, you know, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Um, honorable, I guess, for lack of a better description. I'm not gonna be a I'm not gonna be a sneaky bastard about it. Now, for our, our first show, uh, the f folks downloading this, I uh, may very well be, quote unquote, the choir that we're preaching to. But I don't want to yeah. assume that. Um, what are some good examples that we know of of uh, national security letters uh, being served? Uh, I, I can think of Lava Bit as the first one that comes to mind. Lava Bit's a great example, and actually, it's that's one of the cases that helped bring it forth that you could actually talk to a lawyer about a national security letter. Uh, for those who are not familiar with LavaBit, LavaBit was an email provider. It was a secure email provider. And what they would do is they would provide you with a uh, an SSL encrypted connection to their, to their email servers. Um, all of your email that was being sent to and from was encrypted as I understand it was encrypted uh, at rest on their servers so basically in a nutshell there were there should be no places and no times in which the data being carried by LavaBit was uh, unencrypted now not being the proprietor and uh, the proprietor is a fellow by the name of LeVar Levison um, not being the proprietor I don't know a hundred percent for sure exactly where what levels of encryption or decryption were applied I will say that that's probably a moot point what is I think more important is that they were served with a national security level letter and this national security letter actually commanded them of all things to turn over their encryption keys and that should for anybody that has any understanding of encryption, that should turn your stomach. I mean, that's that's basically you are asking for the keys to the kingdom. This national security letter would have, uh, if if it were obeyed, and in the end, I don't know whether it was fully well, or it's, not. It's basically saying, give me the keys to your house, and yeah. we're going to come and go in and out of the house when you're not home. Yeah. To see what's going on. And that's a great way of looking at it. And as I understand it, the the largest reason why this particular uh why this particular email service was targeted for this is there was a strong suspicion and it may or may not be true, I don't know. I mean, obviously this uh, the client list is is private, but to my understanding the client list included Edward Snowden and that's the reason why there was so much interest in in taking and getting at lava bits contents. Now, the fact that they were asking for keys does that uh, does that imply that end-to-end -end encryption was not being implemented on that service? I'm not sure. I kind of feel that it might be the case. Yes. At the same time, I I've seen some. Uh, I, I I don't want to necessarily. I, I know there are some people who uh, some people who admire Snowden and some people who detract from him, and and for that reason, I don't want to necessarily elevate him too high. But I do, uh, I do have to at least recognize that he was capable of a a reasonable quality of spycraft, 
And as a consequence of that, I would I would reasonably expect he would be looking at end-to-end -end encryption. So it's entirely possible that even having acquired these keys, they would have got nothing. But LavaBit's no more. LavaBit uh, is no more. But it's yeah. important to point out why, because uh, the proprietor decided that he would rather just shut down shop than turn over the keys to the castle. Right. By, by having his keys in government hands, basically, his product was destroyed. Yeah. And, and why would you... If you were founded on a principle of providing XYZ product, and the product was more important to you than the profit, which is a which I, I have to, you know, I have to say that's a very rare thing. But in his particular case, the product value was in excess of any profit he made selling it. Ergo, the only thing rational to do, the only rational uh, thing, yeah, really, the only rational thing to do was to shut the the company down because you were no longer able to produce the product. Mm -hmm. If because if they could do it once, yes, he could generate new keys. But if they could do it once, they could do it to him again. Now, since then, most recently, Google came out and, and admitted that they received a <laughs> national security letter, I believe. Now, here's the interesting thing in Google's case. Google actually got some clear, uh, some uh, clearance to admit that they'd gotten national security letters. They were not able to say how many, but here's the thing. In presenting the number of, uh, the, the number of things that they were in receipt of, the number of these, these legal instruments, they were authorized only to tell you in blocks of 500 how many they had received. So if they had received 0, 1, 499, the message would be the same. We have received between 0 and 499 of yeah. these documents. And here's the funny thing. When they got clearance to talk about this one national security letter, that message changed. The new message was we have received between one and four hundred and ninety-nine. <laughs> <laughs> so for from that moment they were actually able to uh provide some information that actually said, Yes, we did actually get one. I mean, when you hear these anecdotes, uh I mean doesn't it does it strike you the way it strikes me that we're we're I feel like I'm hearing uh, stories from another country, from a, I know. another society, all together, uh, a non-free society, and that should scare the hell out of you. Uh, I mean, th these these kinds of actions, I, I just feel they're incompatible with freedom. It does seem like they should be, and and I have to agree. When you think about surveillance states. Uh, Democracies are usually not the first places that come to mind. You you expect to to hear about places where they refer to great leader or fearless leader or <laughs> or something along those. You expect to see people in their employ uh, along the lines of uh, Boris Badenov and Natasha Natasha Nogutnik. Yeah, you know, uh, speaking with some sort of Eastern European accent. Uh, no, seriously. Um, I want to say it was East Germany that had this situation in their hands, um, and I will stand corrected if I'm wrong about this. I could be remembering the wrong country. Uh, essentially, at the, the closure of the, the Eastern Bloc government that was running that particular country, they had discovered that the government had been recording pretty much everybody, pretty much all of the time. The problem was... Being no later than, I would say, the early 90s, the technology to actually analyze that was not there. It had to be, it was an actual human task to analyze this intelligence and make any sense of it. And the, the difference between then and now is that now we have the technology to analyze this stuff en masse. We have this technology at our disposal as civilians as well. Google is actually amazingly good at analyzing content. But the, the thing of it is, 
this technology now is available and what the government has got at its disposal is is infinitely superior to what Google can do so that really should scare the hell out of you it's not so much the act of being surveilled as the fact that the the technology exists to actually perform analysis of that surveillance without the analysis the surveillance is meaningless and furthermore you know the paraphrase something that Snowden said uh, you know this this situation results in a sort of in, in intelligentsia a uh, a kind of elite class amongst us that know everything about what we do potentially and we know very little about what they do and that seems to me to be an imbalance that is also in, in, incongruent with freedom. The term that comes to for, uh, the phrase that comes to mind is asymmetric warfare. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, I want to dial that back a little bit because I don't like the whole idea of labeling everything the war on this and the war on that and the war on the other thing. But it is definitely asymmetric. It's definitely asymmetric behavior. It's definitely uh, uh, asymmetric information for lack of a better description. You know, um, it, yeah. And this country was, you know, was founded on the principle of, you know, uh, something approaching symmetry, if you want to call it, that, that uh, you know, that there were limits on the powers of the government and the powers of law enforcement. There were limits on what uh, law enforcement could know and that there's no reason that shouldn't be true today just because we you know just because had, we have the technology just because we have the technology and just because we had you know somebody knocked down two buildings of ours or <laughs> uh, you know it, like you know it, and the battle cry of uh, you know bl using terrorism as excuse, an excuse and ha exclaiming how they hate our freedom but then through our actions we seem to hate our freedom more <laughs> than well basically the terrorists have won yeah we, we we have achieved the very goal that the terrorists have uh, have have tried to uh, achieve or basically we've done their dirty work for them so i think it's been important on a, on a on an, an initial episode of this podcast to kind of paint the picture <laughs> of the dystopian world we now live in. But, um, you know, this show and Restore of the Fourth as a whole, I mean, what do we think uh, our objective is? Uh, I, you know, I feel that... Um, well, obviously, the protecting awareness. the Fourth Amendment obviously is inherent in the name "Restore the Fourth, But um, I, you, you kind of made a distinction of uh, surveillance of um, versus analysis. No, um, within that, you 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 pointed to um, certain extra efficient surveillance versus yes. extrasensory surveillance and we are moving into an area of surveillance where even i have to admit the the, the wording of the of the fourth amendment doesn't necessarily cover where um information about what you do out in public um can be called to such an an efficient level um, that there's an asymmetry that that should still be protected with and maybe requires new laws beyond what the Constitution protects. Quite possible, and I imagine it's going to take a constitutional amendment to reach the level that we really would consider ideal. But laws at lower levels than that can certainly can certainly get us going in the right direction. My my best example of this is uh, automatic place automatic license plate readers. Yes. You know, um, law enforcement that uses this technology, and in short, this is just 
uh, vehicles and then stationary vehicles with cameras and then stationary cameras that also have optical character recognition technology. And any license plate on a vehicle that comes within their purview uh, gets read and uh, nowadays gets stored in a database and tagged with uh, geolocation data. It's, uh, it says beyond a doubt this vehicle was at this location at this time. Yeah, essentially. Um, so they're, they're culling all of this information, you know, uh, even here in Albany, it's my understanding there's at least one fixed Alper with ALPR well, I mean, that's on uh, the main drag here. And where's that? Central Avenue. No kidding. Mm-hmm. And um, so at that point, uh, every car that passes by that way gets uh, recorded and stored into a uh, into a database for five years, which is the standard here in New York. Mm. So my point being is that the argument will be made that okay, it's not unconstitutional, it's not a Fourth Amendment issue uh, because. Those cameras are doing what a police officer could do normally, instance by instance, that an officer could observe your car coming down that road, read the plate, and then make a note of where the car was when they saw it. Yeah, it's not so much the ability to to know this as it is the ability to to quickly index and and find all instances of this thing. It'd be like it'd be like having a police officer that could observe sixty cars a second. Yeah. So, you know, I I think even though we're called restore the fourth, I th- I think we I think we. Uh, are one <laughs> dismayed that we're going backwards in terms of our freedoms and if anything we should be inventing new protections to enhance a free society so we if it were my wish you know we shouldn't be having to fight all of these other types of surveillance that encroach on the fourth amendment and rather we should be writing new laws saying okay there's an imbalance of power of how much um, law enforcement or government can can surveil in this super efficient manner as compared to what uh, the people themselves can do. I think um, going specifically to your, your situation of the automatic license plate readers, I think one of the things that needs to be thought about here too is that we need to draw a line between information that is used for billing purposes and using that billing information for other purposes and that of course brings us to the toll roads now if you get on the new york state thruway you've got an option to pay your toll either with cash or to pay your toll via easy pass which i've still yeah i know opted for cash i i know exactly as as have i actually i try to avoid the the thruway for for other reasons entirely but we won't go there because it's not really pertinent but um when you do take the throughway even if you pay cash you are passing through a spot where they do have an, an automatic license plate reader at every toll booth and the reason why they have them there is because any lane can function as an easy pass lane and that is the backup mechanism in the event that your transponder fails they take your license plate they check it against their database and use that for billing information. That is an absolutely perfectly legitimate use of that data is for billing purposes. Now the uh, Massachusetts Turnpike is getting ready to go another direction. They're actually getting ready to do away with toll takers entirely. They're going to have unmanned toll booths. If you come through with a transponder such as an easy pass they'll just use that information and if you come through without one they'll just use the automatic license plate reader to be able to send you a bill later now the 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 obvious the the obvious downside to this is that when you do this yes this information is legitimately needed for billing purposes but you'd better believe that that information is available for whoever else will use it 
And if we want to talk about the transponders for a second, there are other places that are not told roads where transponders get read. Right here in the Greater Capital District, there is Interstate 90. There is a stretch of Interstate 90 that goes from Albany to the uh, Massachusetts state border. And this particular stretch of Interstate 90 is toll-free. And yet, along this stretch of the highway, there are two gantries from which are hung uh, antennas that read easy passes as you go through. Now, the obvious question is, why are they doing this? Now, I'm going to tell you, in all honesty, that the re reason behind it is completely non-nefarious. They actually have every good intention in capturing this information as you drive by. They use the Easy Pass information that they capture this way. Why Easy Pass? Because it's easy to capture. They use the Easy Pass information that they pa uh, pick up as you drive through these areas to make predictions about what the drive time is from there to various key points and they then turn around and post this on electronic signs at the side of the road. So they see your Easy Pass go under this gantry, they see it go under that gantry, they see it go through a toll booth. Boom! They now have a data point that they can use in aggregate to say, okay, it's currently taking 10 minutes to get from this point and 7 minutes to get from that point to the throughway. And that's Basic useful traffic information. And that's good, useful information. You know, but the problem is that the record exists. Now they tell you we're hashing that information so that it can't be, you know, uh, reversed back out and and get the the actual Easy Pass number off of it. But all we have is their word for it. You know, the the information being harvested by the Easy Pass trans uh, by the Easy Pass uh, antenna when your transponder goes underneath it. Yeah, and that's is still plain text. That's and and that's the heart of the asymmetry. Yes, it is in this age of surveillance. Is that it's uh, it most often comes down to take my word for it. <laughs> yes, it does. And I think as an organization, we're looking to uh, seek more um, more mechanisms of oversight and checks and balances of surveillance technology in government hands very much so and I mean on that particular front we could we we've been talking about this particular topic for a bit now so maybe we, we should uh, start to, to, to scroll down a little bit but um, I, I do want to throw one important thing out here and and that is uh, this quote from Abraham Lincoln which I've just pulled up on brainy quote as we go here and says America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. And I want you to keep that in mind every time that somebody brings up the war on terror. It's not the terrorists who are destroying America. We're doing it ourselves. So, moving on a bit, um, we've seen first an outgrowth in the use of encryption and more recently end-to-end -end encryption in the wake of the Snowden revelations. Mm -hmm. In short, I'm always going to assume that there's somebody f so fresh and new that's not familiar. I'm just going to quickly say that Edward Snowden revealed you know, a program of mass surveillance by the NSA in regards to, to phone calls, phone data, emails uh, being sucked up in bulk and analyzed uh, and he put himself on the line ostensibly to uh, to let us know that because it would seem that he felt that what he discovered was not congruent with a, a free society yes I have to agree with that and uh, now there are those who uh, there are those who will say, of course, that he should come home and face the music. But uh, I, I think that uh, one of the things that needs to be understood very clearly is that if you look at the history of what happens, uh, especially in recent years with whistleblowers, you will find that the system of the, the system that is supposedly there for the protection of whistleblowers does not work. 
Um, the the first example that comes to my mind is a fellow by the name of Bill Benny. Um, he was effectively silenced. Uh, he was aware. Uh, he became aware of. Uh, he became aware of uh, NSA's behavior by, like Mr. Snowden, being a, a NSA contractor. Um, and there are a couple of others, and I'm sorry, I'm drawing a complete blank right at the second, but we can suffice it to say that when the question was asked in Congress, you know, is the NSA uh, recording millions of uh, Americans' phone calls? And the answer given was no. I knew before the echo of that word no died down in the Senate chamber that that was a lie. And was that uh, FBI Director Comey? Yeah, it, was, it was Director Comey who said that, yes. No, not wittingly. <laughs> those, those were his words. So uh, we, we've seen um, kind of an... A little bit of an explosion in the use of encryption and end-to-end -end encryption in internet communication since then. Yeah, um, absolutely. We um, we've we're even starting to see mainstream applications like uh, Snapchat and WhatsApp, WhatsApp, mm -hmm. and now soon to be Facebook uh, implementing end-to-end -end encryption in their communication protocols. Yeah, and I, I think we should take a moment and, and clarify what it means when we talk about encryption being end-to-end. -end. Uh, here's, a, here's a perfect example. If I were to use uh, if I were to use the encryption say for instance that's inherent in Gmail and I were to use it to send a message to Fung, uh, essentially what would happen is my message uh, that I type on my computer is going to be sent to Gmail. It's going to be encrypted when I hit the send key because all of the communication between Gmail and me is encrypted. It's going to be encrypted when Fong reads it because all of the email that uh, all, all the, the, the messages, all of the traffic that goes between Gmail and Fong is encrypted. But when it's sitting on Google's servers, it's not encrypted. Or if it is encrypted, it's encrypted with keys that are also on Google's servers and therefore vulnerable. Uh, worse, uh, basically Google can come in and, and they do and they tell you, you that they do. Google can come in and read any of those messages. They use it for, uh, this, this is actually how they're able to provide a, a free email service is that they they use it to to gather marketing information. That's that's Google's primary business, and never forget that. Um, they can get in there and get at the information, get at the emails that you've sent, get at the plain text of the emails that you've sent and received. Um, and of course, that means that if uh, if a national letter, a security letter, or similar instrument should be presented to Google saying, "Hey, we want uh, we want Fong's emails," um, then Google can do it and the fact that they can do it is well known and they have to do it they, they don't really have much choice in the matter now we turn around to end-to-end -end encryption what happens there is I will have a key that belongs to Fong and I'll send him a message and when Fong receives it he can decrypt it however nobody that handles that message between me and he is going to be able to decrypt that message and Depending on how I encrypt the message, I may even myself not be able to decrypt it after encrypting it. And that's end-to-end -end encryption. And that's the type of level of encryption that we should be aiming for. As to where all of the middlemen have absolutely no access to the content of the message. Yeah, so even if it's stored either temporarily or, or long-term on a server, what's stored there is effectively gibberish, gibberish to... Uh, those that don't have the proper keys and if the people sending and receiving are the only people that have the proper keys uh, you know it's essentially uh, <laughs> like like the old uh, myth of of the coke coca-cola formula where uh, only two people in the in the company <laughs> knew the entire formula um, but you know uh, 
for however many years, I feel like people like you and I would uh, use end-to-end encryption technology with each other. But I don't know about you, but I felt frustrated for a long time that I could only use that with other people who knew how to use it. Right, and let's and let's be honest here. PGP is a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no way around it. Now, now for the benefit of our listeners, um, I, I will say PGP is some fantastic cryptographic technology, but it, it is a pain in the ass to use. And um, there's an, an open source counterpart to it that's called GPG, uh, that's uh, GNU Privacy Guard. Uh, it's completely, well, I, I don't want to say completely, but m- for the vast majority of cases, it's, it's backwards uh, compatible with PGP. So you've got some ability to talk with PGP users using GPG and vice versa. Um, but the the thing of it is that the whole process of establishing your key, establishing that your key is valid, and even just the the actual process of encrypting a message is painful. And there's some some programs out there that make this a little bit easier. There's uh, the Enigmail plugin, which is available for uh, Thunderbird email and a few other emailer uh packages out there is is really kind of nice. I know that the the email client that is built into uh Samsung phones supports PGP which is very cool. Um sadly I can't say the same to uh same is true for other brands of phones so you your mileage may vary and uh, I I say this as somebody who's currently carrying a OnePlus so <laughs> consequently I don't have that advantage anymore. Um but uh, the um, the the thing of it is that on the whole, it's very painful to use, and it's mostly painful is the process of getting the keys that you need from the people that you need to communicate with, and it's it's just really really difficult to to do correctly, which of course brings us to cases where it's done I think a bit more right. And, and I have a feeling, Fong, just based on the, the direction you were going in, that you might have been getting ready to bring up Open Whisper Systems. Well, I, I it, it, it's only been so often that I felt the product like kind of made, makes a paradigm shift in society in, in a way. And, and um, the fact that, um, you know, I... I, I for a while there, I felt a, a bit of uh, Weltschmerz, uh, German word meaning, uh, you know, a bit of depression over the uh, the difference between the society you live in and the society you uh, imagine. <laughs> That's the. Um, there was a period where, um, you know. Once we knew of the Snowden revelations, um, it was kind of couldn't get out of my head, and I was self-censoring. And mm-hmm. um, oh, it's it's definitely got a, a, a what's the word they they use there a a, a quinching effect a, um, a a chilling effect. chilling effect. That's the word. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there were topics I wanted to talk to to friends and family about that I just wouldn't talk about over any kind of uh, unencrypted channel. But there weren't many feasible encrypted channels that I could have with mm-hmm. my average uh, with average folks in my circles. Um, and Open Whisper Systems uh, released. Um, what's now called Signal. It was called Tech Secure and a couple other things when it was Red first, Phone, yeah. Red Phone, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but uh, now it's in this nice and neat um, Swiss Army knife of an application <laughs> called Signal for both Android and iOS. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bottom line of it is that it's um, not only made encryption painless, but also just um, adopting a new platform painless. It's it's end to end, yeah. and uh, it integrates so neatly into your phone when you use it that it 
it's literally as easy as using text messages. And, um, you know, walking somebody through it is, you know, at this point, I communicate with my mother over signal. I communicate with my wife over signal. <laughs> so uh, you literally um, just have the person install the application and um, they just have to uh, do a, uh, a confirmation through a text message code and then it's done. It's just done uh, and it relates uh, all of your contacts uh, based on phone number. So there's no need for, you know, pe people certainly had kind of this fatigue of like, oh, I got to register a new username and a new password on this new service. Like there's <laughs> 17 chat that's like services. A, that's like the bane, of, uh, the bane yeah. of our existence these days. Yeah. So revolving it around the 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 phone number, which is just still this ubiquitous kind of identifier that that we use, although I'm sure Apple's trying to dream up some way to get rid of it. But, um, you know, immediately, I install the app, my mom installs the app, and we just start chatting, and that's it. Yeah. And in fact, they, you know, the, the creator, uh, Moxie Marlin Spike, was uh, quoted as saying, you know, we don't even want you to need to know what a key is, no less have to exchange one. Yeah. As, as uh, uh, Ron Popeil may have said, it really is just that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Set it and forget it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I really noted, uh, like, a, like, a, a weight lifted off of my shoulders because like I I can confide in my friends and family who aren't you know I can't see face to face all the time I, can, I feel like I can confide in them again mm -hmm. and and that's that's huge to, to me and it's also I think huge to um, the to activist movements like ours because um, you know, one lesson I learned from being in the Occupy movement was that we, you know, we, I think we were so dazzled in 2011 just by the massive amounts of connections we could make on social media and how we could get, you know, flash mob level kind of response um, and get everybody kind of connected and organized that we forgot we were putting it all out there for, for every, <laughs> we were broadcasting and that, um, you know, when it came to like evictions and uh, being foiled by the cops, uh, you know, we probably shot ourselves in the foot by uh, using just traditional social media. And, um, you, you know, like now with apps like Signal, which we should point out, you can, you can use it for, for group chatting and mm -hmm. for, um, you know, one to one voice chats. Mm -hmm. So you can have encrypted phone calls as well. Yeah. Um, that, you know, now I'm kind of having a constant powwow with uh, groups of like-minded people, like, throughout my daily life about issues that I want to constantly be working on. And it's like, you know, we don't just have to get together at the march or the rally or, or what have you. Like, we, we we're kind of constantly conspiring on <laughs> our... I, I'd be careful about that word, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't know, I, 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 it just feels great that only me and the people who, who I'm talking to know of what we're talking about. I mean, that's how it's been for, you know, thousands of years until very recently, and this app restores that balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that the that the technology that Signal uses um, is uh, the same in, the same technology that also has been incorporated into WhatsApp and a few others. Yeah. And now, it's open source. And that brings me to my next point. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings me to a very important point. Um, there is a, a, a saying uh, amongst those of us who work in the in the computer field or computer uh, enthusiasts or what have you, 
And that saying is that if you are not the customer, you are the product. And if you look at my example from earlier where I was talking about Gmail and, and how they will actually scan your email and use that to put together marketing data, that actually demonstrates the point. It's a free service, but you're not the customer, you're the product. <laughs> and in the case of Open Whisper Systems, what is special in their case is that they are a, a nonprofit organization and the software is, as Fong just said, open source. So the practical upshot of this is that you can actually get the source code that is behind uh, Signal and look it over and see for yourself that it's not doing anything nefarious. And the beauty is that um, third parties have done this. It's been independently, the code has been independently audited. Yes. And uh, so far it all checks out especially in terms of you know if there was any worry of backdoors or any intentional weaknesses in the encryption that's not there and 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 earlier on in our conversation i mentioned end-to-end -end encryption the encryption that is used by signal is end-to-end -end encryption so nothing in between you and your recipient has any access to the keys to decrypt your message and going back to, to NSLs, their open whisper systems is another one this year who revealed that they uh, received a <laughs> national security letter. And just uh -huh. as we described before, they said, okay, here you go. Here's this gibberish that we have. Essentially, uh, it, it, it actually we have wasn't nothing. even. <laughs> it actually wasn't even that bad because um, they don't store even the encrypted message data anywhere for any long period of time. They only store, okay, here's logs of short-term logs of when uh, people connected to the server um, uh, another important point that um, I like to assure people of you know I've had people be skeptical of signal uh, one of which is because it, it it does when you install it it does ask at least on Android it asks for like almost everything under the Sun it does yeah for permissions but and the one that concerns some of my colleagues is the contacts and from what we described before it uses your phone numbers and your phone number contact list as the cross-reference um, to connect you with other people but what the audit confirmed is that even when it does that cross-reference of phone numbers it hashes the phone numbers so when it passes through their servers those phone numbers are not even visible to open whisper systems or anybody listening on on the, the and, wire, and, and this kind of ties back neatly to my discussion about the uh, about the signs roadside that tell you how far how long it'll take you to get to your next spot. Yeah, which uh, yes, they they supposedly hash. Well, here in the case of Signal, we've got actual confirmation that the content is being yeah, hashed. You don't have to take their word for you it. You don't have to take their <laughs> word for it. So. As these apps have become really popular, we've in this last year or so we've had a you know an expected uh, reactionary response from various powers that be who are upset that people can think for themselves now and and talk to each other in confidence about anything, and that scares them. Just in the last year or so, we've had multiple instances of legislators or law enforcement officials pushing for legislation outright banning encryption or uh, putting restrictions or even back doors into encryption. Yeah, just a very, uh, a very quick, simple, obvious example, or at least obvious to me. Uh, is that right here in New York State, there was a law that was proposed that would have actually banned any cell phone, for instance, that could not be unlocked by the manufacturer. Now, what got particularly interesting about this one is that this law, this almost verbatim, also showed up in California and I believe a couple other states. So the important thing to note here is that there are forces that are arrayed against us, and, and we have to be aware of that. And... Uh, most notably was uh you know on the national level was uh, the attempt by uh by senator feinstein and and uh 
Senator Richard Burr to, to uh, uh, force uh, software makers to to put backdoors or uh, you know extra shared keys into their encryption software. Um, so you know I think we're going to see kind of this constant um, cat and mouse game. This, these attacks of, of, by uh, people in the government and in law enforcement who uh, want to maintain total information awareness. Um, wasn't it Comey from the FBI who, you know, was complaining about going black? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, he and, he and many others, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, and it's not just at the federal level. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the fellow's name right at the second, but he was the um, uh, district attorney in uh, New York City, uh, Manhattan district attorney. Um, completely drawing a blank, but he was also complaining about it. So as you can see, it happens not just at the at the federal level, but at the uh, local level as well. And I have to presume every level in between. Yeah, and I think we're going to start seeing a lot of new surveillance issues that are manifesting at the local level specifically. But the good news about that is uh, we have more influence and power at the local level, presumably, to kind of push back at those things. We can um, do things in, uh, through local municipal ordinances mm -hmm. and, and such, whereas... You know, push, trying to push back against the FBI or the NSA is such a gargantuan task. Really, I think that the best thing that you can do, and I mean, obviously, yes, there's there's the election coming up right uh, on the heels of this podcast, which has its it, its elements in it as well, of course. But even when it's not election time, even when it's not an election year, your public representatives work for you and you can reach out to them and actually annoy them one-on-one -on -one if you want but i think as we move forward with privacy patriots i think we're going to try to be the spot to go to to get updates on where these types of threats towards privacy and towards encryption are coming from who are the offenders what bills in what level of government are being put forth uh, that we have to worry about. So we'll be letting you know what we're up to in terms of activism because Restore the Fourth has already been busy at local levels and higher levels of government fighting some of this bad legislation that threatens our privacy and spearheading some bills that does protect our privacy. So we hope you subscribe. And you can keep up with us on our website at www.privacypatriots.org and all of the assorted social media such as reddit.privacypatriots.org, twitter.privacypatriots.org, facebook.privacypatriots.org. Those are handy host names you can browse right to. So thank you very much for listening to the inaugural Privacy Patriots podcast. We hope you'll tune in again as we bring you the information that helps you keep your information yours. See you next time.